You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's the way this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, Black history, the whole diaspora, current events, everything. With each round, the questions will get a little bit tougher, and the guest has 15 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they will receive one symbolic black fist and hear this. If they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we'll still love them anyway. After the five questions, there'll be a black bonus question round at the end just for fun. Our guest for this episode this week is Carly Jackson. Carly is a shark and sea turtle scientist with an MS in marine biology from Nova Southeastern University in Florida. She worked with the NSU shark tagging program, tagging sharks along the coast of Broward County, Florida, and researched the effects of provisioning tourism on nurse sharks in Belize. We'll learn more about that term shortly. Currently, she's the co-founder and director of communications for minorities in shark sciences called MISS. Carly was the recipient of the 2022 Justice and Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Award by the Florida Marine Science Educators Association. Previously, Carly has worked as a research associate for the New College of Florida, assisting the Disney conservation team with in-water sea turtle research. She was also a marine turtle specialist at Gumbo Limbo Nature Center and an environmental educator in South Florida. And lastly, Carly has a show called Jaws Invasion, and it can be streamed anytime on Disney Plus, which is part of their Shark Fest. Again, that's Jaws Invasion on Disney Plus. Hi, Carly. Thank you so much for joining the Blackest Questions. Hi, Christina. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. First of all, my family's from Florida, so I have a great love for the Florida coastline. I've got family in Northern Florida, in Southern Florida, and throughout the state. Florida gal. And then when I saw your bio, <laughs> I thought about this. When I was eight years old, living in Philly, I really wanted a turtle. I, I was, you know, into, you know, the sciences, and I love the sea. And my parents told me, Carly that turtles were illegal in the city of Philadelphia. Oh my gosh. I'm... And I'm embarrassed to it because they didn't want me to have a turtle. I ended up getting a cat, which was great. But you will not believe this, Carly, for the longest time, and I'm going to say deep into my 30s, I thought that turtles were illegal in Philadelphia. Oh, that is so funny. That is hilarious. So, proving the point that we can have a lot of education and not a lot of common sense. But I want to know two things. How did you get into this line of work? And the second thing is, what is provisioning tourism? I've been dying to know uh, what that is. Yeah, so I got into this field um, at actually a very young age. I was about five or six years old and I read a book on sharks and that's how I got, um, like that's how I fell in love with the ocean. Uh, and I'll also note that I am from Detroit, Michigan. So I originally grew up in Detroit. Yeah, very far away from the ocean. But yeah, this shark book, like I just remember I was real, real young and I saw this book with a picture of a shark and I was like, I have to read it. And my mom was like, all right, I'll get it for you. She got it for me. And I was like obsessed after reading it. Like there was something about sharks that I was just like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And then it stuck with me for the rest of my life. My parents were like, oh, this is serious. So you really like sharks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so kind of just went from there. And <laughs> here I am. And then what is provisioning tourism? 
So provisioning tourism, provisioning is just a fancy word for saying feeding. So it's feeding tourism. So it's a type of wildlife tourism that um, tour guides will do to get animals to come out uh, in front of humans because, you know, most animals are scared of us and they need some incentive. Oh my God, that is big. But yeah, so provisioning tourism is just feeding uh, animals, wildlife, to get them to come around humans for tourism purposes. And you also, you often see that like on tours where it's like they'll bring bread and food to like get monkeys to come out of exactly. the trees or they'll like have some sort of chum to put in the water mm -hmm. to get animals to come. Okay. And is that a bad thing or is that something that we should be concerned about or no? Yeah, so it's it's a slippery slope. So I never say if something is like, bad or good because it really just depends like it depends on the area it depends on the species of animals um but for the most part i would i personally don't think that feeding animals for tourism purposes is very sustainable um so you know i wouldn't join in on the practice but and i wouldn't pay money for the practice but um you know there's some places where it they're using it as like a research tool so it depends <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, listen, are you ready? I am ready. Let's, let's see how I do. <laughs> oh, you're going to be fabulous. And the thing oh, is, gosh. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy learning a lot more about the ocean uh, and marine life. So let's get started. Okay. First question for Carly. Who is the only female swimmer of African descent to hold a current world record in swimming in an individual event? Simone Manuel. No, no, the answer is Aaliyah Atkinson. Oh my God. So Jamaica's Aaliyah Atkinson currently holds two short course meters world records in breaststroke, the 50 and the 100. She was the first Afro-Jamaican to win a world title in swimming, and she holds 74 gold medals. She won a total of 124 medals, of which 74 were gold, at swimming world cup circuits uh, throughout the course of her career. And so I started with this question because I, w I was told you were an athletic swimmer in college. I was, and now I'm like ashamed of myself for getting, <laughs> for getting no, that no, wrong. No. But, cause I, but I do know of Alia um, Atkinson. Like I definitely know of her, so I, yeah. And what was so, your race in college? Um, I swam freestyle, freestyle and breaststroke. Um, I kind of did like sprints and stuff in college, but earlier, like growing up, I did more distance events, but definitely freestyle. Now, the only uh, event I was ever pretty good at and not even good, but like so-so was um, backstroke. backstroke. I really that loved my backstroke. That, well, no, backstroke and butterfly were like, Butterf absolutely Butterfly not. just seems like a, a, a shoulder rotation nightmare. Exactly, and that's <laughs> why I never was good at it because my shoulders don't move that way. <laughs> Right. Now, did you ever consider the Olympics or you knew that you were going to go into shark sciences and so swimming was just something that was a way for you to be in the water, but not necessarily a lifelong dream? Yeah, when I was younger, definitely wanted to um, go to the Olympics. Um, I had like, there's a lot of stuff that went on in swimming that um, kind of a lot of like mental blocks that didn't really get me to where I wanted to be. But, you know, it was OK because I still wanted to do like other stuff on the academic side so I didn't you know my entire my entire life was swimming up until college basically when I realized like you know you're not going to make a living from this 
Right. <laughs> but there's, it's interesting because growing up in Philadelphia with, there was the PDR, the Philadelphia Department of Recreation, which there was a movie with Terrence Howard that was made about it. There is this interesting long history of black people in swimming. And then it's juxtaposed to, you know, currently I live in New York and we've got all of these drownings that are happening this summer and a disproportionate number of drownings that happen every summer are with black children uh, and black people, unfortunately. So what do you feel a way that we can get more black people into swimming since there's so many stigmas. And I think some people have mental blocks about the water for a host of reasons. A lot of folks aren't near water or have access to water and swim lessons, you know, in your career of swimming, um, how do you think that we could advance that conversation and that training with our black community? Yeah, I love this question because it's definitely something that is close to my heart. And like, I'm passionate about teaching kids especially um how to swim and because it's a life-saving skill like that's always why i tell people it's so important to know how to swim because it will save your life <laughs> if you're around any type of body of water um but yeah like swimming especially with black among the black community it's such a generational fear as well like it's started back when they were bringing us over here on slave ships you know like a lot of us couldn't swim or we would just drown in um, a lot of those ships and i think it's a generational fear and then also the fact that what like 60 years ago we weren't even allowed to be in the same pool as white people <laughs> so um there's just a whole lot of history with that and i think that a good way to you know get more of us learning how to swim is to just continue to talk about how important it is. Like I said, it's a life-saving skill. Um, it's something that, you know, it can also open a bunch of career doors. You can go scuba diving and you can get paid good money to do work in scuba diving and um, just do a lot of different things with your career just because you know how to swim. Swim coach, lifeguard, get a summer job. So yeah, swimming opens a whole lot of doors for you. Hmm. I love it. I love thinking about swimming, not just as life-saving skills, but also as a way to put money in your pocket exactly. and it's a different career path. Yep. Okay. So you ready for number two? I, I guess so. We'll see how I do. <laughs> I'm already discouraged after that first question. <laughs> I already learned about Alia Atkinson. I knew nothing about her and now I can't wait to do more research with 74 gold medals. I feel like I should know her. She should be a household name. Okay. Question number two. This was the first black woman to earn a doctorate in zoology. Who is she? Um, I literally know her name. Uh, Cause I just did a project on her. Oh my gosh. I just, I'm having a mental block, but I know exactly her name. She's this young black woman, got doctorate in zoology. Um, oh my gosh. I see her name. This is what happens on the show, and I know our audience is like, "Who is it? Who is oh it?" Oh my! I like, okay. I literally know her name, and I see it in like, I see the post that I made on her. Is it's Roger? Roger! Arliner oh my gosh! Yes, Roger Arliner! Oh my goodness! I am failing as a black marine biologist right now. No, like, not at all. Well, I know. Listen. I did not know this. I mean, I'm basically Alex Trebek over here, right? Like, I'm pretending like, you know, I know these answers. No, I'm doing research too. And the whole purpose of this podcast, obviously, is just to make sure that, like, there are so many great Black people who have done so much and are continuing to do so many interesting things in and around our world and society. 
it's important that we know who Roger Arliner Young is. So after receiving her Bachelor of Science from Howard University in 1923, she made significant contributions to our understanding of structures that control salt concentration in marine paramecium, look at me, single-celled organisms, pulling out that, that ninth grade bio and 12th grade AP bio. So her first article on this topic was published in 1924 in the scientific journal Science, which was the first time a black woman in this field had had her research published. And then she spent her summers at Cape Cod conducting research in Martha's Vineyard at Woods Hole and leading the Oceanographic Institution Marine Biology Lab as a student. She then became an assistant professor at Howard and she experienced both racial and gender-based discrimination for many years during her time in Falmouth, Massachusetts, at Woods Hole, and at Howard University. But despite this, Young's dedication to science was unfailing, and she went on to receive a PhD in zoology from Pennsylvania in 1940. So, Dr. Young was also recognized in a congressional resolution in 2005 celebrating the accomplishments of those, quote, who have broken through many barriers to achieving greatness in science. So... As a marine biologist, you are well aware of Dr. Young's contributions to yes. the field, yes? Yes, definitely. And so have you ever done any research in similar locations as to Dr. Young? I have not done uh, research in areas that like Dr. Arliner, uh, Dr. Roger Arliner uh, Young has been in, but, um, but I do know someone who is over at Woods Hole um, doing some research up there. It is a really cool research facility up there in Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm familiar with Woods Hole on, uh, you know, that's how I used to get to the vineyard as a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you mentioned this book. I want to sort of circle back really quickly because you mentioned the book as a child that sort of got you hooked. Um, do you remember the name of that book? Yeah, it's literally called, I'm pretty sure it just is called Sharks. Like it was, um, I actually have the book uh, with me. But it's called Sharks, and like I said, it just had a picture of a shark on the front, and I was just like, that looks so cool. And then, um, yeah, and then I also this year wrote my own book on sharks and published that this year, so it's kind of like a full circle, you know? Like Absolutely. Just, What's the name of the book and the publisher? Uh, so the name of the book is Sharks, A Day in the Life, so um, it's a part of a series called A Day in the Life, where you are like picking different animals to go through 24 hours and see what these different species are doing. Um, and the publisher is Macmillan. And is it a children's book or is it a book for all ages? I think it is fun for all ages because it, it is very like packed with facts and like mm -hmm. beautiful pictures. The illustrations are absolutely gorgeous. Like if anything, I would just buy the book for the illustrations. <laughs> well, I think it's so important because we saw how one book got you hooked and changed the trajectory of your life. And I think, you know, your book uh, could do the same for a young black child somewhere, you know, yes, that's my whether they live near a, a body of water or not. Okay. I'm loving this. I'm learning so much. Are we ready for question number three, Carly? I'm ready. I'm ready. Hopefully my brain okay. is caught up by now. <laughs> right. <laughs> we know how brains, you know, sometimes they just like to, you know, chill out and here we are. Inspired by the books of Jacques Cousteau's Silent World, as well as fishing trips with her father, this coral biologist and teacher was born in Florida in 1933. Who is she? Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with this coral biologist. Hmm. You know, I'm not sure. I don't know this one. I know our audience is like, who 
are these people? I know. Okay, I'm learning so much today. The person is Dr. Joan Merle Owens. Joan Merle. Okay, I have heard of Dr. Owens. You've heard of. I mean, it's. I'm finding out there's so many black women, especially mm-hmm. in your field, um, that I knew nothing about. Uh, Dr. Owens was born June 30th, 1933 in Miami, Florida, where I have relatives. Dr. Owens attended George Washington University, University of Michigan, and Fisk. She was the first Black American woman to be awarded a geology PhD, in addition to her degrees in fine art and guidance counseling. And although Dr. Owens was unable to scuba dive due to sickle cell anemia traits, she used previously collected specimens in the Smithsonian Institute to work on the classification system of button corals, mysterious corals known for their button-like form, deep sea habitat, and solitary lives. And so her work shed light on the evolutionary relationships and uncovered new species and a new genus. And so Dr. Owens died in May of 2011 in Washington, D.C. So had you heard of Dr. Owens before? Yes, I had. Um, So like all these names I know of because I've had to do like Women's History Month or Black History Month stuff on them. So I'm familiar with some of these, but you know, the the name, I'm terrible with names. But yeah, I do remember Dr. Owens, she had discovered a um, new species of coral. And I think that's just so cool, especially for Black women to do back then. Yeah. And tell our audience a little bit more about coral, because what I, what I sort of remember from science class, and then obviously when I go snorkeling, it's like, don't touch the coral. Coral's really important for our ecosystem. It'll burn you if you touch it. It's really precious. That's pretty much where my knowledge begins and ends. <laughs> what else should we know about coral uh, and the work of Dr. Owens? Yeah, so the first thing about coral is that they are an animal and not a plant. Oh. Yeah, so a lot of people think corals are plants because they just sit there and don't do much, but they're actually made up of like tiny animals. So um, they have a skeleton that's made of like calcium carbonate. And then in the skeleton, there are little polyps. So that's what um, basically the whole coral is made of the skeleton and then a polyps, which are like tiny little, think of microscopic jellyfish. (laughs) Um, So tiny little like upside down jellyfish living in the coral um, that gets food for the coral. And then also with these little polyps are algae. Um, so they're specifically called zooxanthellae. That's getting real technical, but basically they photosynthesize and that's how they give the coral its food. So basically coral is just made up of a bunch of different colonies of animal. Um, and you know, like they reproduce and everything. There's all different types of weird looking coral, beautiful coral. Um, but yeah, and yeah, like you were saying, corals are very sensitive to environmental stuff. So, um, when, conditions aren't right in the water, then those little algae that live on the coral, they'll leave the coral. And that's how you get that white, like bleaching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, and, and there's so many areas where coral is dying, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we see it, it's white and it's no longer all these beautiful colors. What, what's your favorite place to sort of observe coral? Like if we were all going to go on a vacation together as like, you know, a griot podcast, Blackest Questions field trip, where should we go and check it out? We should definitely go to Belize. Um, So far, that's been the place that I've been to that's had the most 
pristine, beautiful coral reefs I've ever seen. Now, Placencia, Key Calker, where? Key Calker. So that's where I did my uh, research. I mean, I'm sure anywhere along the Belize Barrier Reef, which is part of the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef, which is the second largest barrier reef in the world, dropping some facts on y'all. Um, and also kind of sad, but also kind of, I don't know how this is, but it is the largest living barrier reef right now in the world. So the Great Barrier Reef, unfortunately, is dying. So that means it doesn't like make new coral colonies, but this one is still building, parts of it is still build, building the reef. So it's the largest living barrier reef, um, but yeah. It is beautiful, pristine. Shout out to our Belizean listeners. I was yes. just in Belize in December and I was too busy putting on, you know, SPF number four right. and, and drinking daiquiris. I should have gone snorkeling and paid attention. Now, can you see it snorkeling or do you have to go scuba diving? Oh, you can go snorkeling. Like I, when I was there, I was there for two months for my research and um, we were snorkeling in like five feet of water and there's just, oh, the water was clear, like hundred feet plus visibility and um the corals are just beautiful like you don't need to dive you can snorkel okay all right well um i'm gonna have to put belize back on my list since yes. i didn't see any coral last time i was there okay you ready for number four let's do it <laughs> let's dive right in, dive right in. Womp womp. <laughs> i do like cheesy jokes. oh i love okay puns. here we go ocean puns <laughs> so this deadly riot in 1967, resulted in the deaths of 43 people, including 33 African Americans and 10 whites. In what city did this take place? Um, 19. Which one? 1967. 1967. And there's a hint. It's a city that you know well. Oh, was it in Detroit? It was Detroit. The Detroit riot of 1967 is considered one of the catalysts of the militant Black Power movement. So the immediate cause of the riot was a police raid and legal after hours drinking club in the site of a welcome home party for two returning Vietnam War veterans. And the police arrested all patrons in attendance, including 82 African-Americans and local residents who witnessed the raid protested and several of them looted and vandalized properties and started fires because of the frustration. So I, I don't always call things riots. I call them rebellions. So during the next several days, more than 9,000 members of the U.S. National Guard were deployed by Michigan Governor George Romney, father of Mitt Romney, for those of you who don't know, along with 800 Michigan State Police. On the second day of the riot, President Lyndon Johnson sent U.S. Army troops to the city to help quell the violence. Shout out to LBJ. In this case, not a good guy, but in most cases, my favorite president. The deeper causes of the riot were high levels of frustration, resentment, and anger that had been created among African-Americans by unemployment and underemployment, persistent and extreme poverty, racism and racial segregation, police brutality, and lack of economic and education opportunities. This is why I don't call them riots. I call them rebellions. And then this rebellion accelerated deindustrialization and the exodus of whites from the city of Detroit. And many buildings that were damaged or destroyed were never rebuilt. And so this is where we are with the city of Detroit. So I know that Detroit is your place of birth until you moved to Florida for school. But had you heard of the 1967 riots? Yeah, I they had. called them the Detroit riots. Yep, exactly. The Detroit riots. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them. Um, and like you said, that was kind of the start of the kind of downward trend of Detroit, you know, like it was um, pretty run down and um, not a lot of money in the city. And it just definitely 
just got real rundown. And um, but I will say that it is, I would say probably America's biggest comeback city because that place has they've definitely made a big turnaround. Um, they definitely gentrified it a little bit, but it is still, it's, they've, it's beautiful. There's like a whole river walk down there. Like I go downtown when I visit, um, a lot and a lot of my friends hang out down there. So it's, it's a city on the rise, but it definitely has a lot of history. (laughs) Definitely a lot of history. Well, I'm an urbanist, and so I study cities, and I'm fascinated with places like Detroit, you know, places where Black folks migrated from the South, you know, not just, we always think of it as the pull of jobs and opportunity when Detroit was like the height of, you know, factories and making cars, and you could have a good job, a good union job, you could buy a house, but also like the the push-pull factors of like fleeing domestic terrorism from the South as well. And so when I moved to uh, outside of Chicago for high school. And so I spent a lot of time in kind of these Midwestern cities. And I would always tell my parents, I was like, these people are so country, <laughs> right? And it's like, well, they're from the U.S. South, girl. Like, you know, their parents and grandparents are all from Mississippi and Alabama and Florida. So of course. Um, but I love Detroit and I, I do. I love the fact that you say it's like, it is a city on the rise, as are so many cities, um, blacks, you know, historically black cities that have been disinvested and now uh, we're seeing a reinvestment. And in a lot of cities, it's Black Americans and also Black immigrants who are helping to rebuild and kind of restructure uh, the way we view these cities. So in 2020, though, the the Black Lives Matter protests reignited conversations about race uh, and you know what was going on in these urban centers. And it resulted in you and your colleagues founding MISS, the Minorities in Shark Sciences Research. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that came about? Yes, for sure. It's like one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, when that the whole George Floyd incident was happening in the summer of 2020, um, there's another incident. Uh, if you can remember, Chris Cooper. Um, he was black man, you know, birding in New York, and um, had the white lady call the cops on him because apparently he was being aggressive, telling her the dog, dog was off the leash. That wasn't allowed. Which is illegal in New York. Exactly. As a New Yorker. Uh, yep. Um, but yeah, so when that happened, a uh, whole movement started on Twitter with a lot of black scientists and a black uh, naturalist. So they started a hashtag called hashtag black in nature. And basically it was to break the stereotype of um, black people don't like to be outside. So basically I posted pictures of myself doing like shark and sea turtle work with the hashtag black in nature. And from that hashtag it actually got like a lot of like following and like likes and a lot of views and uh, Jasmine, the Miss CEO, she had commented on it and was like, oh my gosh, like a black girl in shark science. And I was like, what? You're a black girl in shark science? And it, you know that like Spider-Man meme? They're just like, yes. that's literally <laughs> how it was. And I was like, because at that moment, I had never met another black girl in shark science. I'd never seen another black girl. I didn't know they existed. I thought I was the only you- one. Basically, Celia and Nettie running through the purple field. Pretty much. At the end of COVID. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so Jasmine and then Amani and Jada eventually got in on that thread too. They're the other two um, co-founders. But yeah, we got in a group chat. We jokingly were like, haha, we should start a club. And um, then we all got on Zoom and we just felt like we had to do something. Since all four of us had found each other and had never seen another black woman in the field we were just like we got to change this so 
Um, we decided to literally two weeks later after we met is when we launched. Um, we had to figure out a name, a logo, all that. But that's when we launched uh, Minorities and Shark Sciences. And um, we basically wanted to create something that made shark science a more accessible field and also create a community and like safe space of um, gender minorities of color that were interested in shark science or already in shark science because a lot of us were in shark science, but like we weren't, you know, like our research wasn't being presented and, you know, things like um, shark shows were not representing us uh, accurately or at all, really at all, literally like shark week, things like that. It was very white male dominated. So um, that's really why we created Miss and, um, you know, we are trying to make it a lot more accessible and I think we're doing a good job so far. I love this. I love black girls coming together. Yeah. Well, this segues perfectly into my last question for you, which is question number five. This spring event ran from May 31st through June 5th in 2022 to highlight Black nature enthusiasts and the happiness found in this outdoor activity. What is it? Um, the, is it, we said March 31st through? May 31st. Or May 31st to June 5th. Oh, what happened during that? Was it you the, just mentioned um, it. oh, the uh, Black in Nature thing, Drake? Close. I think we can give you half a fist. Okay, it's it Black Birders Black Week. Black Birders Week. Okay. I'm like, it was something week. <laughs> yes. It was our Black Birders Week, which I take a part in. So Black Birders Week is a week-long series of online events to highlight Black nature enthusiasts and to increase the visibility of Black birders who face unique challenges and dangers when engaging in outdoor activities. The event was created as a response to Central Park birdwatching incident and police brutality against Black Americans. Christian Cooper, obviously, uh, was one of the catalytic events. Uh, and the inaugural event ran from May 31st to June 5th in 2020. And so you like to go into the ocean. I like to look up at the sky because I'm a birder. I'm a Black birder um, and got really into it uh, during isolation, during lockdown and covid and so do you participate in Black Birders Week, even though you're a marine scientist? Um, so I will say I have never participated in Black Birders Week, but I do. I like to, I'm like half of a birder. I like um, like the, what is it called? Like the uh, wading birds here in Florida and the, um, like I can identify a lot of the board birds here in Florida. Um, but they, I, we did start a Black in Marine Science Week, and um, that was a that was a really fun week. We started that in 2020, um, and then and I when think does, when does that normally take place? That's usually in like November or December, like end of November. Um, but yeah, so that was really cool. That was the week that I helped I helped plan that week, and then I participated in last year's, and I'm sure there's going to be one every year now. <laughs> Now, before we go to the lightning round, I do want to ask you something because, you know, as we pay attention to uh, more of what's going on in our marine life, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though there are more shark sightings. Is that indeed the case or um, are we just sort of making a tempest in a teapot or are sharks actually coming closer to the shore because of warmer waters and, you know, environmental sort of collapses um, in places across the world? Yeah, so there's a number of different factors uh, going into why we might be seeing more sharks. So the first one is that more people are getting in the water. So we're just growing as a population. So as more people get into the water, you have like a higher probability of um, encountering or having a interaction with sharks. And 
like I, I tell everyone, I'm like, sharks live in the ocean. So when you go into the ocean, they're going to be there. Because imagine a shark coming out of the water and being like, oh, I hope I don't see any humans today. Like, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, we're their house. Exactly. Period. So it's, it's human infested waters. Um, and uh, basically, yeah, so more people are getting the water. So you're seeing more sharks. And specifically in um, like the northeastern United States, they're seeing a lot more great white shark sightings. And that's because they're seeing a comeback in the seal population. So seals are, you know, a main prey source for great whites. And since the seal conservation is paying off, um, the white sharks are coming in and they're like, ooh, there's more food for us. So we're going to come here and eat all the seals. So, um, so yeah, so there's a healthy population of seals in that area now. So now you're going to get a healthy population of sharks trying to come and um, eat their food. So the, the sharks always go where the food is. Um, and also like, especially with the great white sharks, like back in 1975, when Jaws came out, um, there was a lot of shark culling. So when you go out and just kill sharks, just go out there and kill them because people were scared of them. Um, but since conservation started um, about a decade or so ago, we've been seeing uh, the increase in those white shark populations. So, so yeah, there's, these are all good things, <laughs> I think. Yeah, they're all good things <laughs> unless, you know, you want to be out in the water exactly. to to too far out there. I mean, in New York, you know, right now we're, we're sort of on lockdown uh, just because uh, we've got a lot of shark sightings. And so, mm. but I, my, my thought is always like, well, I'm going to their house. So I actually exactly. have to respect the fact that they're out and about and I need to, I need to focus up. Okay. So before I let you out of here, Carly, are you ready for the black lightning Ooh, round? I guess. Yes. We'll see. Oh, these are, there are no right answers. Oh, okay. I this like that just, one. This is just, this is just lightning round. So it's either one or the other. Okay. Okay. You ready? Ready. I'm ready. Okay. When you're working out, do you listen to hip hop or Afro beats? Hip hop. Cash doll or Trina? Cash doll. Best stand-up comedian, Dave Chappelle or Kevin Hart? Dave Chappelle. Insecure or living single? Insecure. On Thanksgiving, are we eating cornbread or biscuits? Cornbread. Favorite shark? Nurse shark. Sharks or turtles? Sharks. Okay, that's it. <laughs> oh, I like that one. <laughs> See, these, these are nice and easy. I want to thank you so much for joining, and I want to remind our listeners to check out uh, Carly Jackson's Jaws Invasion on Disney+. Plus. Check out her book as well. I want to thank you for listening to The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Akila Shudrick, Cameron Blackwell, and Camille Cruz. If you like what you heard, please download the Grio app and listen to the podcast, The Blackest Questions, and watch many more great shows and share it with everyone you know. Don't forget, you can listen to the Grio's Writing Black podcast hosted by me, Maisha Kai. This isn't your typical writing podcast. We interview any and everybody that has anything to do with writing, from comics to poets to authors to journalists to politicians and more. Remember, that's Writing Black every Sunday right here on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. Download the Griot's app to listen to Writing Black wherever you are.